Alright, so this evening we will pick up in Numbers chapter 27. Uh, the last time we were together uh, in Numbers chapter 26, we uh, covered the second census here in the book of Numbers. And of course the reason why there is a second census is because this is the new generation of Israelites uh, after the first generation of Israelites that was redeemed out of Egyptian slavery fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief. In verse 53 of Numbers 26... Uh, verse 52, the, the Lord spoke to Moses, Yahweh spoke to Moses. Among these, that is, the tribes that have just been numbered, the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. And so coming out of this particular census, we come into Numbers chapter 27, verse 1, and we see the daughters of Zelophehad. Verse 1, Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of his daughters, Malah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord Yahweh in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family, because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers." And Moses brought their case before the Lord Yahweh. Then the Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers." And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative in his own family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord Yahweh commanded Moses. So, we have here, coming out of this census, and the statement that, of course, the land of Canaan eventually would be divided among the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel, and the daughters of Zelophehad come, and they want to know what uh, ought to be done for them or with them. Just as a couple of reference points, um, the this uh, issue of the daughters of Zelophehad will come up again in uh, chapter 36, verse 8, and then the... Uh, um, playing out of this particular statutory ordinance uh, and the distribution of the land to the daughters of Zelophehad uh, actually comes to fruition in Joshua chapter 17 verses 3 and 4 when in fact they do receive their father's inheritance. 
And so, of course, here they come to Moses and they make a plea. And the plea, of course, is in verse 3 that their father, Zelophehad, was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. He died in his own sin. And so they make a plea as part of their plea. They make a, uh, a plea on behalf of their father who, um, although he fell in the wilderness, uh, due to uh, the unbelief of that generation, he was certainly not numbered among those who were in Korah's rebellion, which we previously saw. And uh, he had no sons there at the end of verse 3. And of course we see that God is sovereign uh, over these things. God, of course, uh, could have chosen to give Zelophehad uh, sons uh, to whom to pass on uh, the the. Uh, the land that was his inheritance. God chooses to give daughters, in this particular case, um, five of them. And, of course, this is for the purpose of uh, this particular statutory ordinance. And, of course, the Lord comes back to Moses, verse 6 and 7, and he says that you shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And then... Uh, in 8, 9, 10, and 11, you see uh, further stipulations of this particular ordinance in the Mosaic Law. And in verse 11, it's very clear uh, that this is identified as a statutory ordinance, a permanent ordinance among the Mosaic Law. Before we leave this uh, very brief episode, I just want to point out something uh, that is clearly implied, uh, not just in this text, but in the, um, the fullness of the Mosaic Law. And that is the importance of personal property own ownership uh, in God's law. It's a very, very uh, important part of God's law. Uh, there are prohibitions, of course, against uh, moving markers, for people's property. Um, there are, of course, you know, in the sabbatical year, uh, property of indentured servants uh, is returned to those servants. Um, and, of course, in the Jubilee year as, as, as well, which is the 50th, every 50th year, those land, those inheritances are returned to the people of Israel if they have been uh, loaned out or taken uh uh, as, a, as a possession by someone else in a different tribe. And so just wanting to point out the importance of, the, uh, of personal property ownership in God's law. You will see it again and again. In verse 12, Then the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Abarim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. And when you have seen it, you too shall be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Mirabah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who will go out and come in before them, and who will lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord Yahweh may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him, and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. And you shall put some of your authority on him, in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. 
At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. And Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him, just as the Lord Yahweh had spoken through Moses. So here we see uh, preparation uh, for Moses and his dying. Uh, but before uh, he dies, he is granted uh, the opportunity to go up on top of a mountain. Again, we're on the, just on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, the land of Canaan is to the west, and so Moses is to go up. And he's to get a sight or a glimpse of the promise, but he himself will not enter into that promise. And of course, here in verses 13 and 14, God again articulates why Moses will not be allowed to go in and inherit the promise. Verse 14, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. And so we talked about this back in Numbers uh, chapter 20. Uh, specifically in verse 12 is where where God articulates that. And we saw there that uh, God commanded Moses to speak to the rock, and Moses, in his anger, struck the rock again uh, to bring forth the water. And that was where Moses Moses, uh, forfeited his right to gain entrance into the Promised Land. And we talked at that time not just about the particular narrative there, but also about the theological implications of Moses not being allowed to enter into the land of Canaan. Of course, in verse 15 and following, Moses does what he always does. He intercedes on behalf of the Israelites. He is the great intercessor of Israel. And so he pleads with the Lord, verse 16, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Verse 18, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. And so we see here, and um, a few, uh, maybe a couple of months ago, uh, I think in December, talked about um, Jesus as being uh, the second Joshua. Uh, We talked about that also back in Numbers chapter 20, when we saw um, Moses not being allowed to go into the land of Canaan, and instead Joshua was the one Yahweh saves who comes as a type and shadow of Jesus Christ to take his people across the Jordan into the land of promise. So, And you can see here at the end of verse 17 that uh, part of the plea of Moses is that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd, which, of course, this must ring in our ears as we think about the New Testament and uh, especially John chapter 10 uh, and the uh, great shepherd discourse therein. So Joshua is a type and shadow of Jesus. And so Moses takes him. And by the way, I would note here um, that Moses, of course, is of the tribe of Levi. And so we see that the successor to Moses is not a Levite. The successor to Moses, Joshua the son of Nun, is from the tribe of Ephraim, from the son of Joseph. Okay, He's not a Levite, and he's certainly not Moses' child. But he is one of the two of the twelve spies from Numbers chapter 13 uh, who demonstrated clear faith in Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And so he is clearly rewarded here for his faithfulness as the one to lead the Israelites west 
across the Jordan River and into the land that God had promised to Abraham. Verse 18, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And so um, we see this even uh, transferred into the New Testament in multiple places, specifically, for example, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, uh, where Paul recounts the time that hands were laid upon Timothy uh, and gifts were imparted to him. And we see that even in our own day as we lay hands on elders uh, and deacons as well in the New Testament church. And part of that is verse 19 to commission uh, that man in his ministry in the local body of believers. And in verse 20, especially for the elders, um, putting some of the authority uh, on a new elder uh, in the midst of the local, local congregation as well. And so we see uh, this laying on of hands. Uh, from the Old Testament here in Numbers chapter 27. And of course, we know verse 21, at his command, at Joshua's command, they shall go out, that is the Israelites shall go out, and at his command they shall come in. We see this, of course, fulfilled in the conquest of Canaan um, in uh, the book of Joshua in many ways. Verse 22, Joshua has to come before Eleazar the priest Right, And so now you have uh, Eleazar the priest and you have uh, Joshua, now the, the leader, the authority figure, uh, the, the, uh, even the intercessor in a sense, uh, the successor to Moses. And so these are now your uh, two persons, two men who are leading Israel uh, as they go and begin their conquest of Canaan. Alright, so that was Numbers chapter 27. Numbers 28 and 29, I'm just going to hit the highlights very briefly because, uh, quite frankly, these are repeats from previous sections of the Pentateuch which we have covered. And so in, in um, 28 and 29, uh, it's basically a recapitulation of the offerings and the feasts in uh, Israel. And so, again, I'll just hit the highlights. I do want to point out, though, as an introduction, there's a very interesting text um, in Amos 5. So the question could be asked, for example, why are these laws regarding offerings and the feasts articulated here uh, in chapters 28 and 29? And, and, And more specifically, Do they need to be repeated here if the Israelites are in fact celebrating or uh, providing the offerings and celebrating the feasts while they have been in the wilderness for these past 40 years? Um, if you, you don't have to necessarily go there if you just like to make a note. Uh, but in the book of Amos, uh, there's an interesting text as uh, God is, um, in a sense, um, lamenting and, and, and chastising Um, Israel Um, in Amos chapter 5 verse 25 uh, the Lord is speaking did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years O house of Israel Um, it's a rhetorical question um, and the, the implied answer is no in fact that while that unbelieving generation was in the wilderness for those uh, almost 40 years Uh, They were, in fact, not celebrating those sacrifices and feasts to the Lord. And, in fact, the indictment gets even worse in Amos 5, uh, verse 26. You also carried along Sikkath, 
your king and Kiyun your images, the star of your gods which you made for you, you, yourselves. Verse 27, Therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And so this um, indictment from Yahweh uh, on the nation of Israel in Amos 5, 25 through 27. And the reason why I think this is um, significant for us um, is number one, it provides a basis for why these particular chapters need to be repeated, these details of the offerings and the feasts need to be repeated. But also, I would just note here that that Amos chapter 5, verse 25 text is actually quoted by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Um, verse 42. As Stephen is indicting the Jewish religious leadership of his day. Um, I'll pick up in verse uh, 41. And at that time, he's talking about the, the Israelites in Egypt. And at that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of of their hands. That's, of course, Exodus chapter 32, verse 42 of Acts 7. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rumpha, the images which you made to worship them. I will also remove you to beyond. Babylon, And so we see in Acts chapter 7, verses 42 and 43, we see Amos chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. And so uh, I say all that to say this. We have this recapitulation, these two chapters, the laws for offerings and the uh, retelling of the, the three feasts um, uh, of Israel because it seems as though the Israelites, uh, the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness were not in fact carrying out these um, offerings and feasts which were given to them all the way back as part of the Mosaic Law and the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 20 through 23. So, uh, Exodus, I'm sorry, uh, Numbers chapter 28, um, there's a uh, warning here in verse 2 from the Lord, command the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be careful to present my offering, my food for my offerings by fire of a soothing aroma to me at their appointed Time and so this is also a reminder as the even as the Israelites move west into Canaan and they are in the midst of the conquest and even war against those Canaanites who are still in the land. This is a reminder that God expects them to worship even in the midst of the conquest. And so as we move uh, down here through uh, chapter 28. Uh, in verse 3 and following, um, there's a summary of the, the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord. It was a, yeah, Verse 6, it's a continual burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai, specifically Exodus chapter 29, beginning in verse 38. In, in verse 9 of Numbers 28, there's the Sabbath day offering. In verse 11, uh, there's the new moon offering at the beginning of each of your months, and that is detailed there, which we have already seen. In verse 16 of Numbers 28, there's a beginning of the articulation of the three feasts. So the first feast 
Verse 16, the 14th day of the first month shall be the Lord's Passover. Of course, that is derived from the narrative in Exodus chapter 12. And again, I would uh, also refer you here, we spend an entire uh, session uh, in Leviticus chapter 23, talking about the offerings and the feasts of Israel and what they pointed to, especially in their fulfillment in the New Covenant. So that was uh, verses 16 and following uh, in Numbers chapter 28, the Feast of Passover. Um, In verse 26 of Numbers 28 and following, you have the Feast of the First Fruits, uh, which is also known as Pentecost. And then in, ver- in chapter 29, verse 1, you have in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, this is the beginning of the ingathering, and there's a, uh, a feast of trumpets there in Numbers 29, beginning in verse 1. Down in Numbers 29, verse 7, you have the Day of Atonement, which takes place on the tenth day of the seventh month, and it's also known as Yom Kippur. And uh, you can also not only see that in Leviticus chapter 23, but you can see that in Leviticus 16 as well. We made a big deal about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16 as the high point, not only of the book of Leviticus, but also um, uh, of the of the entire Pentateuch itself. We called Leviticus 16 the peak of the Pentateuch. And so there's uh, five verses here in Numbers 29 talking about the Day of Atonement. In verse 12 of Numbers 29, you have the 15th day of the seventh month, which um, is the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. And for most of the rest of Numbers 29, you have uh, the details of the offerings that are to be provided during the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. And so that is a uh, whirlwind tour of Numbers 28 and 29. Again, just simply a recapitulation of some things that we've already seen on our way through the Pentateuch. In verse 39 of Numbers 29, we read this. You you shall present these to the Lord at your appointed times, besides your vow offerings and your free will offerings, for your burnt offerings and for your grain offerings and for your libations and for your peace offerings. And Moses spoke to the sons of Israel in accordance with all that the Lord Yahweh had commanded Moses. And so um, verses 39 and 40 sort of round out the command of Yahweh to this new generation of Israelites to make sure that they are providing the offerings uh, that were articulated in the first five chapters of the book of Leviticus. Now there in verse 39, uh, some of you might have um, votive offerings. I read it as vow offerings. Uh, That's essentially what votive means. And so we'll pick up in Numbers chapter 30 um, with the law of vows. And so relatively short chapter, and here is how we will round out the session this evening. The Law of Vows, Numbers chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord, or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself, and her father says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. 
but if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord Yahweh will forgive her because her father had forbidden her. Verse 6. However, if she should marry while under her vows or the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day he hears it, then her vow shall stand, and her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day her husband hears of it, he forbids her, then he shall annul her vow which she is under and the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. But the vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, everything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. However, if she vowed in her husband's house, or bound herself by an obligation with an oath, and her husband heard it, but said nothing to her and did not forbid her, then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband indeed annuls them on the day he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the obligation of herself shall not stand. Her husband has annulled them, and the Lord will forgive her. Verse 13. Every vow and every binding oath to humble herself, her husband may confirm it or her husband may annul it. But if her husband indeed says nothing to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all, or all her va- obligations which are on her. He has confirmed them because he said nothing to her on the day he heard them. But if he indeed annuls them after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. These are the statutes statutes which the Lord commanded Moses as between a man and his wife and as between a father and his daughter while she is in her youth in her father's house. Alright, so uh, again picking up on this motif of uh, that we saw in Numbers chapter 29 uh, verse 39 these vow offerings and vows we see here um, about a handful of different cases so the man is clearly addressed in verse 2 if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself um, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth Right. so this is a very simple uh, statute uh, in the law and of course, this is a, a pretty a pretty hefty statute. I would say that um, when an Israelite made a vow, uh, he was clearly directed uh, and uh, and under the obligation uh, to keep it. And we see here, of course, in verse one, that this is a word uh, that is spoken to the heads of the tribes, right? So there's no miscommunication here. Moses is speaking to the heads of the tribes under the assumption that they will pass this down. This is a very serious statute in Israel. We have women here dealt with in four different situations. So the first one would be a woman in her youth. You can see that um, in verse 3. Uh, according to extra-biblical Jewish writings, we would say a woman um, like uh, no older than 13 or 14, for example, uh, who is clearly uh, under the headship of her father while she is still living in her house. And, of course, this stipulation is that um, if the father hears of the vow that her his young daughter makes and chooses to annul it, then it is annulled and she is not obligated to keep it. Um, there is also some extra biblical uh, Jewish writings that um, say that this would also apply, apply to uh, young boys as well, uh, up to the age of, say, 12 or 13. In verse 6, you have the situation where a young girl uh, is under a vow 
um, that has been taken while she's uh, living in her father's house. And then she is off to be married to a new husband. In this particular case, the new husband has the option to annul the vow that was made if he so chooses uh, or he may allow the vow to stand. And again, like I guess I would say here, this this vow could be anything. It could be um, uh, some sort of vow of chastity. It could be a vow associated with um, denial of one's self. There are any number of things that may be the case here. In either case, in verses 6 through 8, you have the new husband who has the right of annulment of a vow or an obligation for a woman whom he recently has married. Verse 9, this is the vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, and everything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. Obviously, this is a woman who is not a young woman and not currently under the headship uh, of a husband. And then we have in verse 10, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an obligation with an oath and her husband heard it but said nothing to her and did not forbid her, then all her vows shall stand and every obligation by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband indeed annuls them on the day he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the obligation of herself shall not stand. Her husband has annulled them. And so we see, again, this uh, idea that a woman who uh, makes a vow or takes an obligation while she is under the headship of her husband. The husband has the right of annulment. And so, um, I, I guess at the end of the day, what's going on here in Numbers chapter 30, what we see most clearly is uh, we see this idea of headship, which also carries forward uh, into the New Covenant and into the New Testament. Um, we saw that the laying on of hands of Numbers chapter 27 carried through, and also here the headship of the father or the husband. Um, and we, of course, we know that the, the clearest text in that regard in the New Testament would be Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, where it says very clearly in verse 23 that the husband is the head of the wife. And so there's a sense in which um, we see here in Numbers chapter 30 that it is really truly the husband um, who has the full responsibility of any of the vows or obligations that are taken in his household, right? So this is not about um, having authority over as much as it is, is it is about a husband or a father having the responsibility to run and to, I would say, govern his household in the way that, see, that he sees fit. Um, and of course, other people could draw conclusions um, uh, and draw with very, or paint with very broad brushes here about differences between men and women. I choose not to do that and rather simply see here an affirmation of a father or a husband's headship in the household. And of course, we also know, um, even from 1 Timothy chapter 2, as we see the responsibility of men even in the church, that that is tied uh, all the way back to, to Eden and the deception of the woman. And so uh, this is uh, very important to understand. It is a, 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 a concept that uh, flows to us, not just through the Old Testament, but into the New Testament as well. And so we see here in Numbers chapter 30, the law 
associated with vows which are taken in households by men and women. All right. So um, next time when we pick up, we will pick up in Numbers chapter 31, and we will see how the conquest continues. I would just remind you that I made the case that the conquest of the land that God had promised to Abraham actually uh, began in Numbers chapter 21, and that conquest will continue next time as we see the Israelites and the slaughter of Midian.